Okay, well, tonight we are starting in chapter 2. It seems kind of odd because we're going to be starting in verse 3. I never start a chapter starting at another verse besides verse 1. So, and then we're going to go into 3.3. Three. Uh, did we run out of... Uh, some people didn't get some. We didn't get a... I run, I run those copies off, and I just grabbed some, and I uh, took them, and so therefore, sorry. <laughs> okay, I'd better be in. <laughs> oh, what I do with this microphone? Uh, that my voice is so weak that it cannot be heard back in the back. So I know that this will pick up, and it'll make it go back there, right? Actually, that's not it. That sounded pretty good. He's back there going, what? I can't hear everything he's saying. Now, uh, she just asked a question why I have this up here. I actually record everything that I do, and so I'm held accountable to the rest of the world. Uh, actually, I put this on our website at, in, uh, at, at Grace Community uh, Church. And so it gets on there. So you guys are on there. If you make any comments or anything, you're out on the web. Everybody in the world is, is possible to be heard. So not trying to put any pressure on you. That's pressure on me. No, no I, I just uh, do that. And uh, if anybody wants to link to that or anything, it's, it's graceccjcmo.org if you ever want to go on there. You guys need to have a website. I've been on Dennis for, I don't know, two years now saying you need to put your messages out there on the web. And and I know Marcus knows stuff like that, so you might have to really keep encouraging him. I'm doing it with him all the time, and he says, no, no, you know. Because he does have one of these. He did, he did one. I think he needs a new one. But it, it's... The, it's, oh, it's called GraceCCJCMO.org. And so I just put this uh, right along with, uh, I do Sunday morning and Monday nights. We have a Monday night Bible study at the store, so we just record that. We're, we're in Ephesians there. Okay, I'm sorry. That's Grace CC. That's Grace Community Church is what it stands for. Grace CC, JC, that's Jeff City, JCMO. GraceCCJCMO.org. I should have put on outlines, but I'm not trying to do any advertising. I'm just saying if somebody wants to, to hear what we're doing, saying uh, here, here's here's what we're doing on Sunday nights, you can go right there if you want. I I personally don't like to hear this voice because I'm getting older, and I've noticed as I get older, I can't sing the notes that I want to hit anymore, and it's really getting bad. A lot of times my voice goes like that, or sometimes it won't even hit the note. And sometimes it hits a note, but it's not supposed to be that note. And uh, I used to do this for a living. Uh, I don't think, I think I would have to pay people <laughs> to listen to me. So anyway, uh, we are in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, and we're looking at the basis of assurance. Uh, one of the reasons why... The Apostle John wrote this epistle, and I think it's probably the biggest reason, is that he wanted believers to be assured of their faith. He wants them to know that they can truly know that they are saved. A question might be, how may I know that I truly know God? And uh, that's what he's going to push forth. You remember in, in, uh, later on in John, he'll say, uh, I write these things unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And there are three tests, basically. We're, just go- we're going to say that. We're going to outline it in three tests. They're going to be right there on your outlines there today. Um, but that's how one can check themselves if they were wondering if they were really uh, Christians or not. That's the way that John is doing it. So far in chapter 1... Um, and this is a really quick review. Kellen says, hey, if you'll go back and tell everything, then it takes away from the ones that were here the week before. No, <laughs> she just says that. <laughs> Actually, to, to really cover it really quick, all he did, all John did in the first chapter was bring forth the evidence of an historical Jesus. And he, sh- he showed it objectively and then ob- uh, subjectively. And then he talked about sin. 
And if you're a true Christian, you will confess your sin. If you're professing to be a Christian and you don't believe you have sin or never have had sin, then you are deceived and even lying. Um, so that's an important thing. That was kind of a test right there. Who do you, uh, who do you say Jesus is? We'll see that in, in chapter 2. Here it's, do you confess your sins in chapter 1? So it's the issue of sin. He illustrated what a true Christian is. Uh, so, uh, is it really possible to have assurance of your salvation? Well, Baptists teach that. They teach it because it's biblical. I see no other doctrine that's true, uh, <clears throat> uh, truer than that. In the fact, I mean, there are many doctrines, but scripturally, we can find it all over uh, the New Testament. You can find it in the Old Testament. It's all about God and what He does for our salvation. Uh, in Peter, uh, we're even commanded to uh, to be assured if you're, if you're a Christian because he says be diligent to make sure about God's calling and choosing you so you have to apply this diligence to uh, the pursuit of this assurance and uh, always have to get a little historical note in if you look back at the Reformation that's where assurance came back in um, what what it stressed was that as the gospel was recovered by the the Protestant Reformation then we saw that salvation was put in its proper place. And it showed that God starts it, God keeps it all the way through eternity. And He gives us enough Scripture to do that. And John Calvin actually taught the assurance is of the essence of faith. And so it's very, very important. So the three tests are this. There's the moral test, which is dealing with righteousness. There is another test that deals with love, and that would be uh, the test of, of the social test. How do you deal with loving others? And a third test is truth, the doctrinal test. And he covers that all in this chapter too. The moral test, then the social test, and then the doctrinal test. So let's pick it up in verse 3 through 6, and we'll take this first section that's dealing with this moral test. This righteousness. Now by this we know, those are two key words that John uses a lot, that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. First test. It's real important. There are a lot of people all throughout church history, even up to today, who profess to be Christians. There are definitely over a billion and a half Christians in the world today or professing Christians. But that takes in all the types of denominations that uh, you might have a problem with how they define salvation. So I doubt if there are a billion and a half Christians today. I leave that up to God to be the judge on that. But the, the fact of the matter is, is not all of them live a righteous life. They may say one thing, but their life does not show it at all. And that's what John is bringing forth here. And John, like I say, um, is black and white. And so it's like... But either you're this or you're not this. You know, if you say this, then you better be able to back it up by your life. And so all the way through here, he's going to be bringing that out. Now, you remember last week we talked about the Gnostics. It was uh, not known as the Gnostics at that time, but there was uh, a basis of that that would later be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is in the know. They know everything that there is to know spiritually. If you're in the know, you, you have all the secrets down, all the hidden knowledge of the world, and you've found that out. Uh, at least that's what they'd strive for. Uh, and you'll notice that John uses that word know a lot. Uh, now this we know, we know, that we know Him. Then he says, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, there's that know, that knowledge. Uh, what, what they were dealing with uh, the Gnostics 
and other heresies that were uh, John was having to deal with at this time, and he saw it coming down the pike also, was that these people were into human reasoning. Now, it's good to be able to reason, but to rest everything upon this great human intellect without really knowing the truth about who God is and then also being changed in our lives, that kind of knowledge is only head knowledge and it is no good as far as true spiritual truth. They, uh, they really live for enlightenment. Now, we like to be enlightened, but enlightened by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, don't we? Well, they were enlightened just like in the, let's say, the uh, what 17th century, 18th century, where you had the Enlightenment period. People uh, wanted to know things. You had philosophy that was abounding. The human mind was amazing. But it goes all the way back to Plato. And uh, a lot of those guys, but they were men of great intellect. They were attracted to to the thinking of the world, and a lot of things that they came up with uh, was helpful, but spiritually it uh, left one lacking. So they came up with, uh, later uh, Greek philosophers came up with the emotional aspect of it. And so if we can get into the emotional, we can find all the things that God or the gods have. We can find those truths. But that left a lot of room for the to not be satisfied because the mind wasn't really being involved. So either way, they couldn't really uh, come up with the, the real truth on it. So the, the philosophies of the ancient world always had a missing connection. It was not there. They were missing something. You know what the problem was? There was no attachment at all to morality. No morals. And if you look at some of the great philosophers of the world, uh, the great intellectuals, and there was a book called The Intellectuals at one time, quite a, quite a fascinating read, evidently. I have not read it, heard about it. But it's about the great philosophers who were the architects of our world to come up with all the thinking that they have come up with. And it reads kind of like a novel. And... Uh, But what you get out of it is you start seeing the depth of the immorality of these great philosophers. The incest that's involved in their lives. The homosexuality that's in their lives. The morality didn't play a part at all. It was totally divorced from their intellect, their great thinking. And that's the way it's kind of gone. It, John MacArthur says there in, in that book there were people like Rousseau and Immanuel Kant and Hegel. And you can go on and on. And all of these guys had immoral lives. That, that's just uh, despicable. But they were considered to be great thinkers. The same thing was happening in John's day. They had that same kind of worldly thought They were sitting in the church with church people calling themselves Christians, but their lives didn't even jive with what they said they believed. Didn't connect to that. So John says here, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So he puts an if there. You can show you're a true believer by doing what God says. By being obedient. That's how you demonstrate that. But he says, he who says I know Him, and there you have that says, people who say things, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Boy, John just strikes out at it right there, saying they're a liar if they say that. He has said that before when he said that um, there are people who say they have not sinned. In verse 10, it says they make him a liar. Make God a liar. Well, they're lying if that be the case. And, of course, he has said that they were deceived. Well, what about Christian knowledge? Well, Christian knowledge and righteousness go together. A Christian cannot be a Christian unless he's righteous. First of all, he has that righteousness that is put on him. It's, it's the righteousness of Christ. And that's the only way we can enter into the presence of the King anyway, isn't it? The robe of righteousness that's put on by Christ. There's no knowledge of God without the accompanying of this righteousness that God has given us. 
So our lives have to be consistent with what we confess. Go back to the Old Testament and we'll see that it just doesn't say it here in the New Testament. If we go back to Jeremiah chapter 9, we'll see how Jeremiah puts together knowledge and righteousness. Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord. Good place to start, isn't it? Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. Look at this. That he understands and knows me. Okay, there's our knowledge. To know God. To truly know Him. To understand Him. And then look at the next phrase. That I am the Lord. And what does the Lord do? Exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these I delight, says the Lord. So God is a God, not only is He loving kind, and He is righteous, but He has His people to have the same kind of attributes. Those are the communicable attributes that God gives us. God takes delight whenever He sees us obeying Him. You ever thought about that? He takes great pleasure. He was pleased in your worship today. You guys are faithful to the Word? Absolutely, aren't you? Millersburg Baptist Church is faithful to the Word of God. So, God is delighted. He delights in that kind of thing. And then to carry that out. In Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah 31, and that's the uh, chapter that's in the section dealing with the covenant, the new covenant. And in verse 33, Jeremiah 31, 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. We'll have a uh, almost like an instant knowledge of uh, things that we don't have here. I mean, we'll know Him in a way that never have have before. And we'll see Him as He is. That's what 34 is saying. So there's the knowledge that we really look to, isn't it? But in verse 33, we notice that He's going to put His law in the minds. There's going to be a new covenant that God is going to make with His people before He comes back. And it's already started. This is started when we have recognized this. He puts His law in our minds and He writes it on our hearts, doesn't He? He's made that. And that will continue to uh, come through um, till He comes back as He will bring people into the covenant. When you think of law, you think of what? Obedience to that law. But it's something that we love to do. We, we rejoice in doing. It's not hard uh, matter of fact, he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He puts a law in us that we love to do. We, we love God. We love our neighbor, for instance. And so, uh, there we have righteousness, isn't it? He, God puts His righteousness uh, in us, desiring to, to do what He wants us to do. Now, there are two types of professing Christians, and, and we've seen that in verse 4 and 5. Um, the one who says it, but he doesn't do it. He goes around claiming that he is one. He'll boldly tell everybody that he's a Christian. He says, I know him, but he doesn't keep his commandments. Uh, that's the one who makes the claims, never obeys God. Um, it's a profession that has no obedience. John calls them liars, unabashedly. They deny um uh, God by their works. They would say they truly believe Him, but they deny Him by their actions. Verse 5, But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The one who keeps 
this is the one that may not necessarily have to go around telling people that he's Christian, claiming it all over the place and trying to persuade people he's a Christian. But what he does is that he keeps the commandments here or the word here uh, in the Greek means to guard, to, to guard the word, the idea of guarding his commandments. Uh, he does those commandments. He guards them. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's precious to him. And uh, so there's the positive attitude towards guarding the commandments. Uh, and he, he has the love of God for that. He keeps his word truly. The love of God is perfected in him. So he observes that obedience. So what's the conclusion to all this? Simple, the test of righteousness. That we may know that we know God and are assured in our hearts by looking at at least one test. Well, I myself know I am not righteous, my flesh, but I know I'm righteous because that's the way God sees me, because of what He's done. And therefore, I don't have to go around claiming I'm righteous, but I desire to reflect His righteousness that He's already put in me. And that's a pretty good test. People can do good things though and fool you though, right? But that's a good test to start with of our own selves. Examine yourself, Paul says in Corinthians 13. Get that right? Did I, was that right? <laughs> that doesn't sound right to me all of a sudden. I don't think it, no, it's not First Corinthians 13. Uh, anyway, wow. See? Okay. Um, there's another test. And that test is dealing with love. Do they love others, right? This is the social test. Verse uh, 7 through 17. Brethren, I like this. John, that's writing, dealing, dealing with uh, love, he calls them brethren. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother, he is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. These tests just kind of interweave all the way through here. This, love is a mark of a Christian. Uh, Francis Schaeffer um, has written that. I mean, that's just obvious. It's right here. But that shows what a Christian is because of his love for God, love for his brother. It's just an automatic thing. It's by love that a Christian may know that they're Christians. Because all of a sudden they have a care for people that maybe they wouldn't have had before. Why do I care about that person? All of a sudden it's like I, I do. God puts that in us to do that, doesn't He? Well, He talks about the law of love here. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. I'm not writing anything new. This is not really anything new here. This is something that's founded all the way back in the Old Testament. But he says, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word, which you heard from the beginning. The, the old commandment, going back even into the Old Testament. I'm not imposing you on you some kind of new trend that's happening here, John is saying. Uh, the, all the philosophies are coming through here. And they were getting philosophy. And they had it in their church. 
And so he's saying, hey, I'm not coming in here bringing anything new. I know some of those other people are. Watch out. Be careful. That's why John is, is warning all the way through here. This is not some new twist. He's saying this is always the way it's been. Uh, look in John 13, where John wrote that. And John is talking about what Jesus had done the night before they crucified him on that uh, Passover. Jesus happens to be washing their feet that night. And then in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. A new commandment. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus says new. John is saying over here, old commandment. And then he comes right back and he says, uh, there's a new commandment I write to you. What's going on here? It's new, but it's old. It's old, but it's new. Uh, what, 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 are you, what are you doing? Well, let's, let's take a look at another one here. Um, Romans 13, 9 and 10. The royal law of love. Here he gives the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, everybody knows this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's how we keep the law. We have this love. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's all wrapped up. Ten commandments into those two. Um, so he's not taking uh, philosophy to the next logical step here, but he's referring back to the Old Testament, then saying it's something new. And it is new in the sense that now it's going to be clearly manifested as it hasn't been before. For now you have the Holy Spirit, and now there is a power in us that has not been exactly like this before. I mean, it's, it's seen in its perfection in Jesus Christ. Now, not that they couldn't love and not that they were not driven by God in the Old Testament, but whenever Jesus is saying, I give you a new commandment, it's just something they'd always heard. And you can go back to Leviticus and see that, but we see also, now it's never been in place like this. They saw love in action every day, every moment. They saw Christ. He is love. As a matter of fact, that's how you define God. He is light. He is love. John loves to use those terms. But that's the point of the statement. That's true in, in Christ. And it's now true in us. We now have been equipped to actually do this. Incredible. Old stuff, but it's fresh. Jesus says. Um, verse 9 you have this guy here that makes a claim again. He who says, it's awful easy to say one thing, but do another. John just keeps doing that. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. How many times have you seen people who say they're Christians, but there are certain people that not only do they... They dislike. They hate. And they might even tell you they hate certain people. Or they, they might even tell you this. I hate all people. <laughs> That's a terrible statement. How can a Christian do that? Well, I don't think they can. Unless it's just off the spur of the moment and they don't really mean that. I mean, you could, could say that and not mean it. But when, when John is saying this, he's, he's packing it up and saying, hey, if this is what one practices, if this is what they really think, they're not a Christian. That's a good way to, to value uh, what one has just stated if they do that and it doesn't stay consistent. If we claim... Well, he's been saying that. Look in verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship... If we say that, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, verse 10, if we say that we, we have not sinned, those if we say, or we see it in chapter 2, verse 4, 
You see it in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. How about the ones who have just been gifted with all sorts of things, it seems like. It says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if that be the case, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul said it well there, didn't he? That agrees right with what John is saying. Nothing new here. But um, the one who loves... There's a manifestation there that's something new. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and now we have the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, right? He is the one that puts that love in us. Now we go to uh, verse 11 of our first John. But he who hates his brother, he comes right back. He, he talks about the one who says and is not. Then he comes back and, and the one who is a Christian, who does love. Then he comes right back over again in verse 11 and says the same thing again. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. I think that's pretty black and white, isn't it? Dark light. Either you're here or you're here. There's no middle ground. And so if he hates a brother, he walks in darkness. And he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Very clear. John is so profound, but very simple, isn't he? Puts it right to there. What a test. Um, if one does that, they're in darkness. They also walk in darkness. And that's, that's a consistent pattern. Uh, somebody can do something. We sin as Christians. But it's not our practice. It's not an ongoing thing constantly. It's broken. But these guys walk in it. And not only that, they are totally blinded by it. The darkness has blinded his eyes. The prince of this world has blinded their eyes. Right? John 12.35 Something that John wrote again here. Way back in the Gospels. This is quoting Jesus here. Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. The light is Christ. Walk while you have the light. While I'm here. Lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Does that sound familiar? Sounds just like our first John, right? Same writer. Stays consistent. Dark. Light. Life. John loves to use those truth, certain key words. And he's using it because he's battling false teachings that are coming in at the same time. Light, dark. They're in the darkness. They're saying that they're brothers of you and that they're Christians, but look at them. They don't have love for their brothers. And uh, take that love out. It's, they're, they're not really true. Now, this kind of breaks up, but I can still, still see how it can fit into the outline of love. It, because now what he's going to do, he's going to take what I consider to be spiritual growth here. And some do, some don't. Uh, I was impressed upon by uh, John MacArthur and, and the way that he did this many years ago by taking the little children and then ones who were the young men in the faith and then the mature, the fathers. Mothers, but the ones who just walk with God. Well, the little children. Let's look at that just for a moment. These, I think, we could say they're probably comparable to new Christians or immature Christians. People can be Christians for a long time, right? And not be really mature because they haven't had the knowledge and they haven't developed that and so they haven't walked it the way that uh, maybe they, they could have, maybe been stunted. Uh, but every Christian knows that his sins are taken away. They know that their sins are forgiven. That's what he says in 12. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. 
A brand new Christian doesn't know much. But he does know that there has been a forgiveness that has happened to him. Matter of fact, he knows Dada and he knows Mama. A baby does, right? As they, as they grow where they can talk. So you'll see that in verse 13. Right at the end, that last phrase, I write to you little children, he says it again, because you have known the Father. They know Abba, Daddy, Mommy. They know they're forgiven. Or, you know, okay, the, a spiritual Christian knows he's forgiven. Uh, so they're just like a, a, a little baby. They're, they're brand new. So it's along that lines. Uh, they delight in the fact that they're attached to, to the Father here. The, the next group, it says fathers in verse 13, but I'm going to go with the, how the flow goes here and then come back. It says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. And also it says at the, in verse 14, right at the end of it, I've written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. I would call these the ones that are very strong uh, in... Uh, the Word of God. I mean, they, they have studied it. Um, they have uh, examined it. And they are uh, starting to really live it out. And so they have a lot of energy. They're on the front line of the defense. Uh, they might know their apologetics. Um, they're empowered by God. And, and any kind of uh, attack by Satan, they can withstand. As it says here, they overcome the wicked one. Uh, it's, it's the faith that does that. But they, they know truth. So why are they so strong? It's because of God's Word. They're growing in it. It helps them understand sometimes they're a little more vocal than maybe they should be. And, but because they, truth is so much to them, uh, they can debate. They'll debate with anybody. Yeah. But that, that's a good thing. And that's, that's part of, of growth. And it's a, that's an excellent thing. We, we, we need that. And uh, of course... You know, it's, uh, I think in, in one's growth, they, they know that truth is what, uh, what really matters. Then you have the fathers. And it says in verse 13, as well as it does in 14, the same thing. I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Look at verse 14. I have written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Same thing. doesn't add to it or anything. It just says... They have known Him. Really knew Him. Intimately knew Him. They fully trust God. They practice wisdom and insight. They have the Word of God. They, they, are, um, they are set in the Word of God, but they have a communion with the Lord. They, they know Him. They definitely know their doctrine. And it's not that they don't know doctrine and they just have a relationship with God on a, on a spiritual basis so they don't need a word anymore. We always have to continue to look at that. But they continue to want to plumb the depths of the very nature of God, the character of God. They study Him. They desire for that to come out in their own lives. And um, it's just like the hymn writer said, being lost in... What was that? Being lost in His... In His praise, in His wonder, in His love. I think you pointed that one line out, didn't you? In Blessed Assurance? Lost in His love. Lost in His love. That's where they're at. They're so lost in, in love of God, of what He's done. They know His character and nature. They just want more of Him. They're exhilarated in just the, the knowledge of who God is and desiring a fuller, a more richer life. And they take that sound doctrine that they've always had and now they're able to live it out in a way and show it in a way that would be so Christ-like. It's to intimately know God. So, three stages. I mean, there's probably different ways to interpret this. That's the way I've usually seen that. But there, I know there are other ways. And so it doesn't have to be gross. But um, I was looking at James Montgomery Boyce and... He put it out, laid it out basically the same way. Just, just helpful to look at. But there is a love there, isn't there? The love that the father has for his children and then the, the children for the father. And as they grow in him, they're, they're trusting in him. Uh, they love him. The word of God abides in them. They live it out. 
And they've overcome the wicked one as it goes along. Then he gets on the negative side. This is dealing with love again. Do not love the world. We know that we're to love the things of God, but now Paul goes on to say what should be applied to their lives here. Somebody who loves the world, we're talking about the things of the world, is not a believer. That's, that's, that's what John is saying. Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There again, boom, boom, black, white. Well, what's he saying? Well, what's the deal with, with the world? I'm sure you guys discussed world many times. Uh, there is the cosmos, and you think of the created order. Uh, cosmos is related to our English word cosmetics, which means an arranged order. Ladies arrange their faces with cosmetics, right? Guys do that too. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I have, but if I was on camera, they'd probably make me do that or something. But anyway, uh, it's, it's... What's that? No way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> So there's an order there. Then there's the world of mankind, uh, where there are people in it. Uh, a collective term. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Or how about First John two two? We uh, looked at that last week just a little bit, where He said He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Uh, and He's not talking about just a, or a created order there, but He's talking about the people who are in this arranged order, this universe, and, and, and what have you. It, uh, it's not necessarily individuals there as it is a collective term. Um, anyway, the third use here is what John would be appealing to, and that's talking about the ethics or the morals, the values that the world has. It's talking about the system. Don't love the world system. He's not saying we're not to um, be thankful for the created order that we have or not to love the, the people that are in the world, but he's talking about the system that is in the world. Because if you have unbelievers, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to have their own values. They're going to have their own pleasures. They're going to have their own aspirations. And they shoot for something completely different than we do. Obviously. <laughs> you know, there's nothing new here, is there? You know, we think about it. But he's, he's getting into um, the, the end of this test. And, and he's making sure, saying, okay, there's a dominant spirit in the world. There's a common denominator here that, uh, that is happening. And um, this common denominator is, as he gets ready to move into verse 18, he's going to uh, bring forth the, uh, the thought of the Antichrist and the Antichrists in the plural. So he, uh, as he's talking about the world and loving it, now he's going to move into verse this, this verse 18. need to probably cover a little bit on 16, though. We're, we're into some famous verses, aren't we? 16, for all that is in the world, what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the boastful pride of life, is not of the Father, it is of the world. Uh, you have, you have um, all the isms and the schisms and the fisms today. You have atheism and you have Islam, you have Buddhism and all of their different values and their doctrines and their teachings. You have an endless line of false prophets, you know, misrepresentations of, of Jesus Christ, and we're totally opposite from all of that. And he starts with flesh because... That's the ungodly attitudes that people have. This, this, uh, this flesh here is um, uh, all the things that it wants. The lust of the flesh, the sarks, that it just goes for automatically. The fleshly nature. And we have a new nature. And we're not desire that. And John says, don't love it. You've got to hate that kind of thing. When you have a battle of those carnal desires... We have to war against that, right? 
So loving God and loving the world is absolutely incompatible, John says. You can't have both. Jesus said something almost the same line when He talked about mammon or money or things or possessions. You cannot love God and love those material things, all that lust, everything that's offered out there. You can't have both, can you? It's one or the other. We know that he, he gives us things that we are to use that we're here, but hold on loosely to it. So the lust of the flesh and all that goes with that, um, the sensual and, and what have you. Um, God's commandments as far as the worldly person is concerned, they're totally oblivious to what God's Word is. That doesn't matter to them. The next one is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes, coveting, wanting things, seeing things, and wanting things that somebody else has. Matter of fact, even going to the point of, I wish they didn't have it, and I had it, because I can't stand it when they have that, and I don't. And I want it. And it's not theirs. But or, I, I still want it. It's not mine. It's just not being content with what God has given us. What God has given us, we should be content. So he says, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and then the boastful pride of life. That's where one always desires to put themselves over another person. You know, being better than others, trying to do whatever it takes to get something over on them so that you're, you appear better. Uh, don't want them to be better than you. And uh, of course, that is not love, is it? And that's the things of the world. That's, that's what they do. Let's pretty well sum it up. If you went back to Genesis 3 and see what happened to Adam and Eve, we'll see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, what the enemy was offering uh, right there, right from the outset. That's what we are to battle. And that is something that we are to push aside and keep looking to Christ. So the idea of love and then not loving uh, the world John puts forth. So what have we done? We've done the moral test. We must live it. We've looked at the social test, which is dealing with loving others. And now he gets into the doctrinal test. And this is dealing with truth. And John knows this is of supreme value because he's going up against this. The and and I think all throughout the church age, for 2,000 years, the church has always had to battle against things. And, of course, the church had to define what they believed, you know, certain doctrines, whether it be the Trinity or whether it be the two natures of Christ. Constantly, and that's why they had to do the creeds. And you look at the history of the church, they had to come up with things that they knew was biblical but could be wrapped up and saying, okay, anybody that doesn't accept these things, they are considered to be outside the realm of what the church is. There are certain black and white things that uh, here's what the church believes and here's what it doesn't. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. We can't give on that at all, can we? Jesus Christ being God. We can't give on that at all. Uh, of course, the Word of God. All of these are what? Fundamentals. You know, that, that cannot be discussed uh, in the sense that, well, you might write, you may be right and I may be right, or you're right on your end and I'm right on my end. You know, <laughs> that's that's the worldly thinking of the day, isn't it? That's postmodernism. Uh, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. Uh, no absolutes. Well, John would definitely disagree with that, wouldn't he? Well, that's where he comes into this truth test here, starting at verse 18. Let's take 18 through 21. Little children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, here we go, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I think you made it clear, didn't he? <laughs> um, Antichrist. Interesting, he uses that word here. Do you know this is the first time that it appears in the New Testament? Although the thought was already known by them, because he makes it very clear. He says, um, it's the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. 
Now I think John is, is actually pointing to the fact that in the last days there's going to be one who comes that is going to be one who wants to like rule the world or uh, to, to take over in some sense, to have people worshiping him. And, and so in that sense, I, you know, he's saying, okay, you've heard about the Antichrist. Well, I want to tell you there are Antichrists also which there are many of these people, they're here with us right now, is what he's saying. It's not that he doesn't believe in an Antichrist. Uh, Verse 22, let's see what he mentions here. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So there's one of those Antichrists there, denying um, Christ and really for who He is and His person and being God and being man. Um, Chapter 4, verse 3. He will use that again. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Uh, So that, that spirit is already there. He's saying that there is an Antichrist. If you look in 1 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness... And there's different terms. And John uses it also in Revelation 13 and, and other places. But the, the actually wording, the term of Antichrist, we finally see it here in the chapter that we're at tonight, chapter 2. Second uh, John, verse 7, he uses it again. So evidently, uh, people knew exactly what he was talking about. He used it many times as he, in his teaching. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. See, there it is. John is saying it again. What about these? Who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Did they confess that there was a Jesus? Yeah. But he really wasn't in the flesh. That was one of those emanations that came from the gods, the true God. And by the time he came here, he really did. It came in the person of a man by the name of Jesus. Uh, and then he left at the time of the crucifixion. And so, really wasn't a person. He really wasn't a man. That's dangerous theology. That was in with people that were in the church. Just as sure as we're sitting right here, you know, uh, this is the church. Can you imagine people being with you, being amongst you, that did not really believe that Jesus was manifest in the flesh? And that really Jesus was not God. Those kind of things. That's what John has to really battle against. And he says in Second John, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. You know about the antichrist? Well, these guys have the same spirit as the antichrist. Whew. Boy, John, I don't think, put up with false teaching that came in. He knew the dangers of it. And Paul had warned to the church at Ephesus, which John was a pastor of, which Paul had been a pastor of, and I don't know if, um, who else was there. I think I know Polycarp later. Timothy. Last week you had to fill me in last week. I missed Timothy. There we go again. I, I should never miss that name, well, Tim. <laughs> that's right. Of all things, that's an automatic, right? Should know that. So, a great church, do you think they knew doctrine there? Ooh. And Paul said, I am warning you that there will be people that come in. In Acts 20, he said this, that will bring in false teaching. And uh, there is John saying it right there. He was battling it there in, in the 90s AD, uh, whenever he wrote that. Uh, you being a man of books, you uh, probably see a lot of books that are about the same way today. People write about all kinds of weird things. Absolutely. Uh, oh, do you remember? Uh, remember 1988? 88 reasons why yeah. Jesus is coming back this year. <laughs> you remember that one? <laughs> that just comes out of the top of my head. A lot of those are out there. They're still naming the dates too. I think 2012. There are people. There's a movie out now. <laughs> there are people that literally are believing that that's going to be the end of the world. The only problem with that. Is that, uh, of course, we're told that nobody ever is going to know that. And another thing, the longer they keep putting out those dates, 
the longer it's going to be set for Christ to come back because he's not going to come at their will. <laughs> so be quiet, right? <laughs> we want him to come back. That's kind of at the end of this letter tonight as we look at where the section of we're at, it's pointing to. And, and all the songs do that. Dennis pointed it out there on the last song we sang. You ever noticed how it, uh, songs will talk about um, Christ defeating sin, it'll be the cross and such, and then the last verse talks about Him coming back. And you, you can't eliminate that. I mean, that's our great hope. And of course, we're, we're heading for that direction. But in the meantime... John has to struggle with these guys. There's going to be a final struggle eventually. And Daniel talks about uh, this man that, uh, first of all, it was Antiochus Epiphanes. That was fulfilled. But it pointed to the time that there would be a man coming into a temple um, later. Um, and then you see that Revelation 13, that takes the whole idea into the future in Second Thessalonians. Anti means in the place of, it can mean against, it can mean in the opposition of. In one sense, uh, you're going to have an antichrist coming, let's say, that could take the place of Christ. Saying that he is Christ and he looks so good, says all the right things, fools people, and if possible, maybe even deceive the elect. (laughs) At any rate, uh, he's definitely against Christ. So it can be both of those. He comes in the place of Christ, but he's also uh, opposing Christ. And this whole spirit right there was happening at that time. Uh, he's, going, he's just going to be the final one in a long line of Antichrist, uh, false replacement of Christ. I think any liberal theologian today would probably deny the deity of Christ. They can do that pretty easy. And possess the spirit of Antichrist. You know, may not be the Antichrist, but have that that spirit. Um, these people here went out. They they defected from the church. Thank the Lord they did, because that doesn't always happen. But it, it was. I think God made them move on. But they had such a, a, a false teaching that here John is is giving a warning and. Uh, and at the same time, he knows uh, he probably knew who some of these people were. And if you have false teachers, he knows what it can do uh, to to a church. So he, what was revealed was the truth, and it came to light. And the the colors were there; you could see it. But it was black and white, and those people had to move on. They weren't welcome there, but. Uh, maybe they saw that they weren't going to make any inroads into this church because they caught it and uh, the Lord uh, helped them uh, move on out. So God's children here uh, are going to persevere. But the true teachers will not persevere. They may not always leave the church, but if if the church is built around solid doctrine and theology, my thought is this they'll either be uncomfortable with you and try to stay in there for the longest time and they can hang in, but eventually, if the gospel is preached and preached, you'd like to think that they would just move on out if that's what they are against. Right? That that would be the blessing. That's not always the case because you have uh, this, uh, the, this, the tares and the wheat. And... It says we have to be careful because we don't know a lot of the times what the tares are. And if we take them out, what are we going to be taking out to? The good wheat. So I'm glad God gave us that because we know that all churches are going to have a possibility of having some people who are not true. And at least we have that warning. Jesus said it and of course uh, John says it here that these people actually left. But um, and and that was a that was a blessing. Um, the heresy is they have an error about Jesus Christ. They denied that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, God became incarnate in the person of Christ. We believe that, but the Gnostics believe that Jesus was this emanation, and so therefore to confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They couldn't do that. And 
so there's a heresy. I remember someone coming into a Bible study we had way back in the 80s. And the Bible study had just been going on a couple years or so. And um, Lord, I really blessed that. And uh, there were a lot of brand new believers in there. And there was one man that came in, sat there, really taking it in, writing notes down. You know, wonder what he's doing. And next thing you know, uh, and we just happened to be dealing with a passage where it said, you know, dealing with the deity of Christ. And he said, Jesus is not God. Whoa. And I said, excuse me? I didn't know what to do at first. And I saw that he was going to bring out some false doctrine as it was coming out of his mouth. I go, oh my. Um, I'd like to talk to this man and correct him. Um, but there was another, and I, I had to stop him right immediately of, of speaking his false errors. People were, were catching it. Most of them were. And, and I immediately said, okay, we went to the passages that dealt with the deity of Christ. And I said, we need to pray. And we stopped right there and prayed. Well, he came back the next week with two other people. And I knew what he was standing for, and he was not going to be corrected. I found out who he was. He is a leader of a cult in Jefferson City area. And he actually is a professor at Lincoln University, even to this day. Every student that goes through Lincoln has to go through one of his classes. And so he grabs onto several of those. What's that? Yeah. But I didn't know that at the time. But I said, You're not welcome here. For you, you know, I said, if you change your doctrine and your theology and submit to the truth, I'd be glad to have you in, but I cannot with you espousing a false doctrine. I said, the two can come in. Well, I made a mistake there. There were two ladies that acted like they knew nothing, uh, but they took notes, wrote down people's names, <laughs> contacted them, and within, within a couple of months, they were writing derogatory things about me who was the teacher of the, the Bible class. And they were helping this one teacher out, is what it was. So eventually they were not welcome either when we found out what they were doing, even though they came under, under disguise. But the heresies that were trying to be brought in, and we had to do something about it. Um, let's go to the conclusion here. We're right at the end here. Uh, he says in verse 20, we didn't read that, but, but you have an anointing. You, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. You know what's true. And it's just like he's turning now to the ones who are the believers. You know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And there John hits it right on the head. They had that same kind of stuff back then in the first century as we do today. And all the cults will deny the deity and humanity of Christ. They may, they may take His humanity, but they will not take His deity. I've never seen a cult yet that would ever say that Jesus is God. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So, uh, we recognize that what he's saying there, that a true Christian has God's knowledge and they, they do confess that Jesus is Christ. Then he says in verse 24, Therefore, let that abide in you. Let it remain, stick around in you, I think, which you heard from the beginning when you became Christians. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, if that sticks around or remains, you also abide in the Son and in the Father. If this be true, that's what it's going to be. This is the promise that He has promised us. What? Eternal life. There we go. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing that teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and it's not a lie, and just as it's taught you, you will abide in Him. Okay. We just have, right at the end, I'm going to read a couple more verses. And now, little children, abide in Him, and when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who, I like this, practices righteousness is born of Him. And then He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world that system does not know us. 
They think they have all this knowledge. They don't know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, here we go, you guys like this? When He's revealed, when He comes back, that unveiling happens when we see Him for who He is, the second coming. We shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. If you truly know He's coming back, you desire to live a godly life. You don't want to be ashamed, right? Isn't that what motivates us? The blessed hope. The hope of Christ coming back. And that is why, that's one of the reasons, and one of the biggest reasons, see, all throughout the New Testament, the coming of Christ, the blessed hope, wants, makes us want to desire to follow His Word, His commandments. Anyway, hey, we got through that.